Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a reporter on the corporate team in Houston, and joining me today from remote locations, as usual, are Dion Doherty, my partner on the corporate team here in Houston. How are you doing, Dion? Doing great, Luke. How are you? I'm all right. And we've also got Bridget DeCosmo, who covers policy and politics in Washington. Hey, Bridget. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going good. All right. Well, the excitement just never stops in the energy world these days. We are recording this a day after we watched WTI crude prices plummet into the single digits and then blow through $0 to price well into negative territory. And of course, it's regained some of those losses today, but still pricing is incredibly volatile right now um, and is a topic best left to another team to discuss. And in fact, Energy Intelligence just held a webinar on oil markets that is free to listen to and can be accessed at our website, www.energyintel.com, if anyone is interested in that. But today on this podcast, we will be talking about the moves that state and federal governments can make to try to stop the bleeding for the oil industry and whether that's something the industry is even looking for governments to do. So Bridget, let's start with you because of course, just hours before we sat down to record this, Donald Trump tweeted his support for the U.S. oil industry and said he's directed the Departments of Interior and Treasury to quote, make funds available to struggling oil companies, which is to say oil companies. Uh, But does does this mean that the oil industry should be expecting some kind of federal bailout? Yeah, so I think it may be a little too early to look at it as a bailout per se. There has been this question of whether the $450 billion in the recent coronavirus stimulus package passed last month would be made available to oil firms. And that's been kind of a source of angst and speculation over the past couple of weeks. So I look at this as more aimed at providing reassurance that those funds will be, the efforts will be made to make those funds available to oil and gas companies. What's not clear is whether the Trump administration now intends to leverage other federal authorities to try to beef up that funding or free up any additional financial support to the industry. Um, It's also worth mentioning that the WTI price crash also kind of reinvigorated this drumbeat of more protectionist policies like tariffs on um, on crude imports. And uh, that seems the drumbeat seems to be coming the strongest from Republican lawmakers, but tariffs have been a, a favorite tool of the Trump administration. So it's come up again with uh, U.S. crude futures hitting negative. Okay, so I, I guess we should maybe hold off on the bailout terminology at, at this point. But I mean, if there are sort of funds that are made available uh, in some form or another, I mean, is that politically feasible in the current environment where, you know, pretty much every industry on the planet is struggling to some extent? Right, right. That's a good question. I think that the WTI, WTI plummeting turned up the heat in terms of political feasibility, at least for the time being, as far as uh, pressure on Trump is concerned. His public remarks before today seem to suggest that after the OPEC plus supply deal, he kind of considered his role finished. But I think there's still an open question of how much political capital the White House can afford to spend right now for, on help for the oil sector, especially since anything oil specific has so far been hitting a brick wall with uh, in Congress with congressional Democrats looking to block anything that seems like it's targeted at helping the oil industry. Hmm. And, and what about this concept of filling up the strategic petroleum reserve with super cheap crude? Uh, what are you hearing on that front? 
This is something that got a lot of attention last week, this idea of paying producers for a future crude that would stay in the ground until it was needed to fill the SPR, um, until there was room. But that plan doesn't seem very fleshed out at this point, and the administration is still trying to get Congress to approve funds to just fill up the current 77 million barrel void in the SPR. So there's a lot of skepticism around whether or not that will happen, let alone um, the more ambitious, the more ambitious plan. I want to come back to this uh, a little bit later, but first, uh, Dion, let's move to the state level here for a minute. Um, It seems like some of the more substantive or at least actionable discussions right now are happening among the states. And of course, Texas, which is by far the largest oil producing state, is the most closely watched in terms of potential market intervention, whether that's through pro-rationing or something else. And you've been following what's happening at the Railroad Commission, um, and we covered it a bit on last week's podcast, but uh, you just got done listening to a meeting of the commission that was held today. So what is the latest on this pro-rationing discussion? Right. So the Railroad Commission uh, held a regular meeting today. Um, the pro-rationing issue was on the agenda. The vote was a, a vote was not on the agenda, which was counter to a lot of people's um, their understanding. I think a lot of folks expected there to be a vote, but because it wasn't on the agenda, they couldn't vote. Um, The uh, commissioner Sitton, who has brought this issue to the fore, um, made very clear he he wants to vote today. Um, He said he's ready to vote on a 20% cut uh, beginning June 1st, contingent on uh, 4 million barrels a day being cut by other states, Canada, and OPEC+. Plus. So it kind of sounds like he's counting on the G20 to engage um, and and other states, which I, I think, as, as you've noted, Bridget's noted, um, some of them are kind of reluctant to jump on board there. Um, Sitton has said, though, that he has talked with other states, with his counterparts in other states, and they're interested in finding out what they can do. Um, our information um, has been contrary to that. Um, but anyway, so today's hearings day, Ryan wants to vote. Um, the chairman, uh, Wayne Christian, was as has been his, his way more reticent about it. Um, he's assembled a blue ribbon task force of stakeholders, producers, uh, trade associations, and they're all sort of looking at the options. And he reiterated some of the things that companies can do now, mostly aimed at the smaller producers, where they can get tax credits on wells that produce less than 15,000 barrels a day. Um, if, if shippers or uh, uh, purchasers cancel contracts, then those producers can file discrimination complaints. Uh, common carriers have to provide space to walk-ups. And uh, I believe it was um, Commissioner Craddock who said that she's assembling the, that information to find out what's the status on common carrier um, unfilled storage capacity and then what refiners have available. Um, Commissioner Craddock has also spoken to the comptroller's office to see about getting some relief on the severance tax for uh, producers, and he said no. Um, and she's thinking that his position might change given recent events. So that's something we'll want to follow up on. Um, a fascinating debate. Uh, like I said, Sitton is, is ready to vote, and he's ready to vote yes. It's unclear where the chairman comes down. Um, Christy Craddock is the only lawyer on the commission, and she had some real concerns about whether, let's see, as she put it, make sure we have the legal grounds to do what's right. Um, so she's looking into the legal issues. She has some concerns. Uh, she said litigation, for, if it's tied up in litigation for four to six years, that doesn't help anybody. 
Um, so that's sort of where she's coming down. Uh, there's another vote or another uh, committee meeting on the 5th of May. Um, that agenda is not out yet, so they very well could vote on May 5th. Um, it's unclear which way the vote would turn because there's three members. You only need two um, to, to make something happen or not make it happen. And um, it's, it's, it's still up in the air where the chairman especially might, might go. Um, now, that said, he could or they could call another emergency meeting like they did for the April 14th hearing where they had uh, some 58 stakeholders testify. It's a 10-hour meeting, the longest railroad commission meeting ever. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's unclear kind of where they go from here. All we know is there's another opportunity for a vote on May 5th, and the presumption is they will all be working um, to shore up support and figure out what, what might help. Um, you know, Sitton made one comment that, you know, making no action is an action on this. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 24 hours, let alone the next two weeks. Uh, it, it might all be moot at that point. Okay. So it sounds like there's still a lot of uncertainty on at least that the most sort of hot button topic of whether the, of whether the state will step in and actually enforce some sort of curtailment or, you know, pro rationing. Um, but do we know like what kind of, and I mean, you, you mentioned some of the, the potential legal challenges, but do we ha know if there's any kind of precedent for this kind of government intervention in the U S I mean, we saw it in Alberta last year in Canada when prices in Canada cratered and it was relatively successful, but has anything like this really even been tried in the U S not, not that I'm aware of. And you would think that if, um, if anybody on the commission or anyone who had um, you know testified last week thought, Alberta had been a, a raging success, they would have talked about it a lot. Um, and they have not. Um, one thing that the chairman said is that he has spoken with a Canadian official, no idea who that is. Um, and to get some ideas. So presumably that might be someone in Alberta who maybe is giving him tips on how to do it better. Um, but as far as a state taking this sort of action, the only time I'm aware of was back in the thirties when the railroad commission did it, but the circumstances were very different. Um, there was concern then about depleting a field in East Texas, not um, whether or not they were wasting precious natural resources because they were so cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, we've heard, we've heard a little bit of chatter from other States, just like, like North Dakota said last week that they're not planning to implement any curtailments, uh, but they did recently give producers some more flexibility in, in how long they're allowed to leave wells uncompleted, which, you know, is expected to help with business decisions and presumably, you know, would be a market-based approach to kind of production levels. Uh, have you, have, have either of you heard of uh, other oil producing States like New Mexico or, or Oklahoma and just kind of what they are, what they're thinking about? From my perspective, um, New Mexico lobby groups were a hard no, but that was two weeks ago. I think Bridget has more current information that maybe they've softened that position. Is that, Bridget, is that true? Uh, I know that the state has pivoted slightly in their thinking about it. I think that the state, that New Mexico itself, uh, state officials were a hard no maybe two weeks ago and more recently have made it seem like there might be some behind the scenes discussions going on, which is more than, than they were willing to say a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I'm unsure about, about lo where lobby groups are at on it. Okay. Um, well, I think kind of the question that we're dancing around here, Bridget, is 
is kind of the extent to which the industry even actually wants government intervention. Uh, there's been quite a bit of disagreement within the industry about exactly how much of a free market we really want. So I guess getting back to that Trump tweet today, how much of it is the White House feeling like it just needs to do something to support an industry that the president has championed really since he took office and how much are companies actually asking for government intervention? There definitely are companies that have been consistently meeting with the White House and seeking some level of intervention. It seems like the strongest calls have come from some of the uh, debt-strapped independents like Pioneer and Continental, I think, have have had multiple meetings with White House officials in the past month or so. Um, but then you have the majors and most of the trade groups that represent largely the majors on the other side that have been stressing vehemently that they don't want to see any market intervention and they want to see the White House double down on the demand crash and deal with the COVID-19 response and get thing get the country back up and running as soon as possible. Uh, so I think that that split has made it really difficult for the White House to know kind of which way to lean on this. And that's been another major impediment to any sort of action. Hmm. Um, so really, companies like Pioneer um, are not among those that are debt laden. In fact, Scott Sheffield has said something like, um, you know, by the end of the year, if we're at $20 oil, there's going to be about 10 independents left that are, quote, alive. And that is that have a, a balance sheet to where they can actually do something. Um, the rest of them are going to be zombies, basically. And when he's referring to, to companies that are over leveraged, that have too much debt to do anything to grow, um, he, he's talking about some of the big guys, Marathon Oil, which Lee Tillman will refute, um, Occidental Petroleum, Oventum. These guys were all against pro-rationing. Um, what uh, the word is, you know, that Pioneer is more interested in taking advantage of a situation um, because they're, they're not, I mean, they're struggling. Everyone is struggling, but they're not having the problems. They're not confronting the very real insolvency that's ahead for some for some companies. Okay, Dion, let's uh, just to wrap up here, let's take a, a step back and talk a little bit about what companies are doing on a corporate level in response to this unprecedented supply glut. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of companies struggling internally as well and how they're dealing with that. I mean, we've heard companies talk about plans to cut spending. Of course, Conoco was the biggest one that said they were going to curtail some of their production. Um, but what kind of action, what kind of like real action are we seeing to back up, you know, this market talk? Well, it's kind of hard to say at this point. Um, we do know that several companies have made a second round of CapEx cuts. And the, the word is that you can expect a third round. So it's going to be pretty dramatic, maybe between 40 and 50 percent when it's all said and done. Um, what that's going to mean for production, though, I haven't seen a whole lot. Most of the companies are saying, you know, we'll see at earnings season when hopefully they'll give us more visibility. Um, so I think really what we can expect more more of is um, cuts to capital spending, um, maybe some more hits to the dividend. Um, you know, that's a recurring expense that companies may not be able to to cover going forward. Hmm. Um, okay. Well, I think that's all that we have time for this week, but thanks to everyone for listening. And as I mentioned earlier, go check out the latest webinar from Energy Intelligence at our website, energyintel.com. That's also a great place to go read the latest news and analysis from our global team of reporters and analysts. So please go visit. 
We'll be back with another podcast before too long, but until then, I'm Luke Johnson, and thanks for listening.